following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 11. This morning is where we're going to be. Genesis 11. In 1972, some of you will remember this song, Carly Simon released her famous famous song, You're So Vain. Right? Now you know the lyrics to this. You're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you, don't you, don't you? Right? If you don't know that, something's wrong with you, right? I mean, uh, you need to listen to better music. I mean, okay, so, right? It's a song that's intriguing. For years, people wondered whom this song was written about. And while Carly Simon never really fully released who it was about, she did release letters that match with the name. Periodically, she'd give out a different name and eventually came out to be known that it was probably Warren Beatty, which if you know anything about Warren Beatty, this would make a whole lot of sense, right? But what's intriguing is what she said at the early on stages was that this song was written about a celebrity who entered into a party that she was at, and here was the quote, He entered in as if he was walking onto a yacht. Meaning, he walked in, chest out, looking around, thinking everybody was staring at him. And this celebrity was so full of himself that as the song said, he probably thought the song was about him. Now what's intriguing is, just 50-something years later, the idea of vanity... Wanting to be noticed by other people and wanting to make a name for ourselves is cheered and applauded and lifted up in our culture as if it's the highest standard of celebrity status. And while thinking about that challenge this week that we face in our world, I thought I'm going to, I'm going to ask Google an interesting question. Google, how many selfies are taken in one day around the world? 93 million on average. Then I wondered, I thought, I wonder how many of those pictures then are uploaded onto social media per day. 300 million per day are uploaded to social media. Now just think about what those numbers represent for a moment. I'm going to say this and just let it sink in for a moment. We take on average 93 million pictures of ourselves every day. I want to say that again so you can let it drop in your heart. We take, on average, 93 million pictures of ourselves each day. And we upload 300 million photos each day just to social media. Now let these numbers do some math to you. This does not include the 18.7 billion texts that are sent out each day. So imagine if you took the 300 million per day uploaded to social media and you added that to the amount of selfies that are sent via text per day, which 18.7 billion texts are sent each day, I think you're going to get close to touching a billion selfies or photos of ourselves sent out each day. Just like that celebrity who walked into Carly Simon's party, we hope... We pray, and we long for the day when the song really is about us. 
We like it when other people recognize us. And we hope we can make a name for ourselves. But my question this morning, and really out of Genesis chapter 11, it's going to stir us, is, is that good? Is it good? And what does God think of when we try to make a name for ourselves? How does God view this? How does he think of it? Well, this morning we're going to see this moment when it went awry, when it went south. Humans, using the best technology of their day, attempted to make a name for themselves, and God had something to say about it. And it's a great lesson for us. And here's what I hope we're going to learn this morning. This is the big idea. If you're new with us, you've got an outline. has a big idea at the top of the page. If you've been with us forever, you know what the big idea is about. And here's what we're going to hopefully learn. When we attempt to make a name for ourselves, we choose safety, security, and we live small lives. God always accomplishes his plans. I want to say that again because the culture is going to say something radically different. <clears throat> when you choose to live for yourself, you're going to live a large life. God's word says something radically different. When we attempt to make a name for ourselves, we choose safety, security, and we live small lives, myopic lives, exclusive lives. God always accomplishes his plans. Now today we're going to turn our attention to the famous story in the book of Genesis called the Tower of Babel. Now to the original hearers of this story, several things would have stood out. But let me give you a few things that might have stood out to them. One is they would have seen that it's a consequence of sin and people's rebellion against God why we have all the languages and nations in the world. They would read that and recognize it really clearly. But as we're going to see in a moment, there's a reason why God gave us these languages and nations. They're also going to think that God doesn't want us to build buildings for our own pride and our own security and our own safety. That's going to matter to them when God tells them to build the tabernacle and eventually build the temple. They're also going to learn where all the nations of the world came from, like Egypt and Babylon, that were in their neck of the woods. But there's another fascinating thing that they're going to read and think about when they read Genesis chapter 11, is they're going to, they're going to see all these huge buildings and structures and towers of their times. Some of you who know your history know that this, this would be called ziggurats or ziggurats, these big, huge buildings. And the ancient mythology of the day, the Mesopotamian religion said the false gods of their time created these massive towers. Genesis chapter 11 is going to tell us, no, actually humans created those. It's funny is we're going to get an answer to the question, who built the pyramids today? It wasn't the Martians, it was humans. We're going to see that very clearly, and we're going to see why that happened. That's what we're going to see this morning. That's what these people would have thought about when they read this text. So when we read it, we read it this morning, see if you can't feel like you're an original hearer of this, walking through this desert land, trying to get to the promised land, and hearing what Moses really what God is saying through this written letter from Moses. So stand with me. We're going to read Genesis, parts of Genesis chapter 11 this morning. Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1, and this is the reading of God's holy inspired word. It is authoritative. It is God-breathed. 
Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they they had brick for stone and bitumen for, for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower while the children of man, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do now will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there was there, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. Now skip down to verse 25 with me. And Nahor lived and he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. May God bless the preaching of his word and the hearing of the preaching of his word. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, again, here's what we're going to learn from this, this particular text. When we attempt to make a name for ourselves, we choose safety and security and live small lives. God always accomplishes his plan. So let's start with the first point in your outline, which is a little bit of a play on words. It's, it's, it's man built up. You're going to see this in verses 1 through 4. You're going to notice in verse 1 that the whole earth had the same language and the same words. Now, if you were paying attention last week, or better yet, if you remember last week's sermon, which all statistics tell us that by 24 hours you've already forgotten what I said last Sunday by Monday, um, let me remind you what we read last week in Genesis chapter 10 when we noticed that there were people groups and nations getting started as we looked at these various genealogies that were in chapter 10. We noticed in chapter 10, verse 20 and verse 31, that there were languages already being talked about. So what Moses, the author, is doing in Genesis chapter 11 is explaining to us how Genesis chapter 10 happened. Genesis 10 or 11 is a picture of how and why all the nations and languages of the world are all over the place. Why do we have all these different languages and all these different nations in the world? And the way this happened was because humans came together in one location and they used all their ingenuity and the best technology of their day and they built a city and a tower that reached to the skies or reached to the heavens. Now this does not seem like that big of a deal until you read their reasoning. Why did they choose to get together in one place, build a city and a tower? What was their reason? And you can see this clearly in the text. They said, to make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, you've got to take these motives, why they did what they did, and put them in context with the book of Genesis. What have we already seen in Genesis that would tell us something is a problem in the plains of Shinar? 
Well, the first thing you're going to notice when you put it in the backdrop of Genesis is that when God made us as humans, he created us to worship him and serve other people, not serve ourselves. And he made us in such a way that when we worship God and we serve other people, we find remarkable joy and incredible satisfaction in life. Matter of fact, the highest play to, the, the biggest place to be happy in your life is to find all of your worth, all of your joy, all of your worship, and your identity in God. And when you do that and serve other people, you find a remarkable sense of happiness and satisfaction. But when you get myopic and you get small and you get selfish, you find yourself becoming depressed, angry, discouraged. So we've seen in the book of Genesis already that when sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, the battle for self-supremacy came onto the scene. We saw gender wars beginning in Genesis chapter 3. We saw family rivalries starting in Genesis chapter 4. We saw tribal fights beginning in chapters 4 through 6. All because we were now focused as humans on getting ours and fighting for our very own rather than worshiping God and serving other people. That's one motive that's amiss here in Genesis chapter 11. But you're going to notice another issue that's remarkably important to this story. When God made Adam and Eve, he told them to be fruitful and multiply, and notice this little phrase, and fill the earth. Meaning they they were to take their family life and spread out all over the world. And when God made Noah and his family, or when God saved Noah and his family from the flood and brought them out of the ark, he gave them the exact same command. Yet, what do you notice in Genesis chapter 11? Rather than taking dominion of the earth and subduing the whole earth and filling the whole earth, humans are congregating in one location for a reason, to make a name for themselves and to purposefully disobey God. Now, there are some who think the problem in Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel, that this tower, when they built it, People wanted to be like God, and they wanted to dethrone God. But I just want to tell you, that's not what's happening in Genesis chapter 11. What's happening in Genesis chapter 11 is something fascinating. They thought if they built this city and built this heavenly tower, listen, it would keep them from the unsafety of scattering around the rest of the world. A.P. Ross helps us when he says this. Their major error was not the building of a city or a tower, but listen, but the attempt to unite and live in one place. Since this decision was open rebellion against God's original commission, their sin as well may be labeled hubris. That is immense pride that leads to disobedience to God. The pride was in disobeying God's original command to spread out over all the earth and live for the glory of God and the good of other people and taking dominion of all the earth and bringing that God image with them. And it was revealed, this pride was revealed in the attempt to build a tower in a a city in one location completely outside of God's purposes and God's design. I think you're noticing, I think in the book of Genesis, aren't you, is every time humans step out of God's purpose and design, There's a problem. Every time. This moment in Genesis 11 
is the epitome of being myopic, very small in our thinking, self-centered and being exclusive, kind of kind of clickish. We don't want to spread out over the whole earth like God commanded us. This is safe. This is comfortable. Now, from this point, I want to draw just two things that I think will help you apply this to your own soul. Have you ever noticed how we as humans like things comfortable, safe, and secure? You ever notice that? I notice that the moment I walk in the door of church, when people say things that are critical... I notice when I get up in the morning and my coffee isn't nearly as hot as I would like. That's blasphemy, Pastor, right? I notice that when I crawl on the sheets of my bed at night and my sheets are all crumpled and I'm like, can we straighten these things out, right? See, we like our coffee hot, our beds cozy, and our homes warm. We like our bank accounts full, our tummies satisfied. And our clothing soft. Have you ever noticed how important it is for us to call a place home? What is home? The place that you can go prop your feet up and it's a place that you can rest and relax. And how many dads have come home or moms have come home from a long day at work and you say, and your kids are bombarding and you just say, look, I just want to be at home to relax. It's the reason why everybody loved the sitcom Cheers about a famous bar where everybody knew your name. It's why the sitcom Friends is such a remarkable hit, because everybody's comfortable, satisfied, it's safe. You know people. You can trust people. We like things comfortable. We like them safe, and we like them secure. It's part of our makeup as humans. But this story shows us that gone bad. A.P. Ross says the basic characteristics of culture. That means all cultures all over the world, human culture, are thus seen in the Genesis 11 account. Underlying anxiety, the fear of being separated and disconnected, and the desire for fame, a sense of security, and a powerful reputation. The people in Genesis 11 had the fear of missing out, FOMO, They had a fear of not being noticed. And my only question to you is, can you relate? Not not can you point the finger at somebody else over here and go, no, they, they really need this. But can you relate? Can you relate? And don't miss that this desire to to make a name for themselves, this desire for safety and security led them to use, this is fascinating, their own ingenuity and the best technology of the day to make things safe, cozy, and secure. Does this sound remarkably familiar? Friends, things have not changed much in the 21st century because our cities and towers are now digital. They may be high, but we still hide behind computer screens and phones and congregate in little chat rooms or group things online, and we meet ourselves together to build our cities for our own glory. We're not much different. The question that this story begins to drive home into your hearts is, 
Where in your life are comfort, safety, and security idolatrous? Where in your life are comfort, safety, and security about you? Where in your life do you get mad, anxious, or fearful when you're not comfortable, safe, and secure? But there's another point in this that drives things even further that I want to draw out. You ever notice how we, have, we as humans have always wanted to reach for the heavens? It's in our DNA. There's something in us that just wants to get, we just want to keep moving farther and farther and farther. We saw it with Adam and Eve wanting to be like God. We saw it with humans mingling potentially with angelic and weird mighty beings to create mighty men. We see it here in building a tower to reach the heavens. Those of you around remember when JFK started the space program. Because by the end of this decade, we will get to the moon. And some of you remember where you were sitting, where you were when man landed on the moon, one giant sleep for mankind, all that stuff. They get off on the moon. Everybody's, wow, we have arrived. It's why we're still exploring now. Can we settle on other planets? It's why we build huge skyscrapers. It's why we build monstrous athletic stadiums. We've always wanted to get there. But the question is, at what cost? For what reason? What motives lie behind it? But our desire for the heavens isn't just literal, like, let's get to Mars or let's get to the moon. It's also figurative, like, when will I finally arrive? When will I finally make it? And believe me, you hear this conversation going on with young men every time I meet with them. When I'm finally this age, making this amount of money, having this wife. But then you just mature that a little bit more. When I finally had this amount of money in my bank account, when I finally had this, this 401k set aside, when I have this much amount for retirement, then I finally have arrived. And friends, this desire to arrive, this desire to make it, this desire to reach for the skies is why is it, it is so easy to compromise in order to get promoted. It is why it's so easy to lack integrity just as long as you make it. For my world, it's why baseball players would use HDH and steroids. Everybody else is doing it, and if I want to make the haul, I better be sure I'm using everything else everybody else is using because that's where I want to get. And in my other, my day job, it's why pastors, it's easy for them to sacrifice their families on the altar of ministries because they want to arrive. So friend, where in your life is making it, reaching for the heavens, idolatrous? Do you feel lonely and discouraged when people don't like your comments or your pictures on social media? Do you find yourself checking regularly to go, I wonder how many followers I have now? Do you get angry when others are noticed in the church more than you, and you might even think to yourself, well, they just want younger people, not older people, and you begin to be critical. Or do you get angry when somebody else gets the job you wanted and you were hoping for? Where is this desire idolatrous? So what you see in Genesis chapter 11 is something fascinating. Man built up a city and a tower 
to be built up. It's fascinating. Let's look at our next point, which is probably the most important one, is God came down. See, verse 5 in Genesis 11 is a turning point. You're going to notice something fascinating in the book and in Genesis chapter 11 is as man is doing his thing, it's like it's on this deep decline. God comes down in verse 5, and then God reverses everything that man just did. It's like a sarcastic way of Moses writing this when he wrote that man, I mean, just do the math for a moment, man built this tower to the heavens, and God had to condescend himself to come down to it. God had stepped down. And while the text might seem like when you read it, like God came down to check out what man was doing because God didn't know really what man man was doing, that's not the case. God came down to render judgment on man's activities. God came down to tell man and to tell us and to tell Moses' readers what God really thought of the city of man. And we'll see this in verses 6 and 7. People have one language, are one people, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. And you read that and you say to yourself, what is the big deal with that? Why can't humans be left alone by God to go do whatever humans want to do if nothing is impossible for them? What is the big deal? Why is God getting in the way of human ingenuity? And that's not what's happening here. See, when you combine Genesis chapter 11's disobedience to God's command, you combine their hubris, their exclusive pride, and their desire to make a name for themselves, if God left them alone, this would have been disastrous. Now you might ask, why does God say this is a big deal? Why, why not just leave sinful man alone? Why can't humans do big things? And nothing be impossible for us. After all, in Christ, we can do all things. No, you can't fly, dude. I mean, just, okay. What's wrong with this happening? Well, here's one answer to that problem. Our sin and our rebellion against God is what's wrong. This is not because God was afraid of a rivalry. Let's let man do what he does, and God does what he does, and let's compare the two and see how it goes, like they're going to box it out in a wrestling match, or I mean, in a boxing ring. That's not what's happening here. God is not afraid of the rivalry, but rather God is protecting man from man. See, we must read into this text, Cain and Abel, in Genesis chapter 4, when sin always creates rivalries. And sin is always after selfish ambition, getting what is ours and protecting what is ours. Now what's fascinating is humans made in the image of God have the capacity for remarkable good. Just being made in the image of God gives you the ability with the God-like image you have to do some really good things. You know, this is one reason why when you have a fire that non-Christian firemen go running to that building to put it down. There's a common goodness in us made from the image of God. But humans who deny God, live in rebellion against God, for their own glory, have the capacity for the greatest of all evils. Friends, I want to ask you a question in our battle for self-esteem in this day and age. 
aren't you glad that Hitler didn't have more self-esteem? God's judgment was that sinful man, with one language, gathered in one place, had the capacity for remarkable terror, evil, and harm, and God said, we're not doing that. As Kenneth Matthews wrote, it can hardly be that the heavens trembled because the advancement of mankind in any way threatened celestial or heavenly rule. But on the contrary, God was troubled over the injurious consequences that would fall upon the human family if left unchecked. The sin of man was the problem, not the ingenuity of man, not the technology of man, or even the building that man built, which led God in verse 7 to confuse the languages. So they couldn't understand what they, they literally begin to speak and they just can't comprehend what each other's saying. See, God's judgment was to cause them to disperse, to be scattered. He made it impossible for humans to congregate in one location with one language and to do evil things together. I mean, good grief. Just think for a moment. We can't even understand each other on the basis of what, what a gender is. That's how confused our languages are. We have to sit down and say, wait, stop for a moment. What exactly are you saying? Is this what you said? When my wife and I were having a conflict, we'll sometimes stop and say, okay, wait, stop. Tell me what you're saying. And she'll say, the sky is blue. And I'll say, okay, you said the sky is purple. No, I said the sky is blue. Blue. B-L-U-E. Okay, you said the sky is blue. And we just calm ourselves down to understand one another. Yet God took languages with one swift move and scattered us and made it where it's hard to understand. So we couldn't work together in our sin anymore and do evil things to one another. In one move, God showed that his power was greater than man's. Are you aware of that? I mean, all God had to say was, uh, let's just have different languages. Man spent years building this tower, and God said, hey, just for a moment, Stop talking to one another. And it happened. Man's attempt to make a name for himself and disobey God by securing himself in one location in the city of man is turned on its head by God. Now, don't miss that. It's at that moment, then, that people are dispersed. They're scattered. And all over the earth, they're scattered. That's why the place is called Babel, which means the confusion of voices. Now, before we move on, I just want to draw out some things from this that I want you to just pay close attention to. God coming down shows us, now listen clearly, those of you who think you're something in this world, how big we think we are, God is always greater. Don't miss this. As high as humans might think we can build, God is always above it. God came down. I just find that fascinating. It's like God kind of getting off his throne and going, well, that puny little tower down there, I'm going to go down and check it out. God had to stoop down to come to the most technological city in the world. Remember that when you go to New York. Remember it when you fly over Dubai. Remember it, friends, when you hear about smart cities. <laughs> And you think smartness in comparison to the wisdom of God? 
bigness and compared to the greatness of God? And for the original hearers, can you imagine what this would have said to them? They would, this would have been so encouraging. Their God, the one who rescued them out of Egypt, which was the greatest power on earth at the time, was greater than any city, any empire that they might encounter. And Christian, do you, do you let this settle into your heart when you read your news and you think, oh, how big the government is. Oh, dear God, what's going to happen? God stoops down to the White House. Let that blow your mind. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars and nations getting big, remind yourself that your God stoops down. And be amazed by that. The city of man, no matter where it is, is beneath your God. Is that great news? That's such great news. But the other thing I want you to see here is how God sees our our mighty city. <laughs> I love what Kenneth Matthews wrote on this. He said, the necessary, the necessary descent of God and the humanness of the enterprise that the men were building shows the escapade for what it was. A tiny tower conceived by a puny plan and attempted by pint-sized people. <laughs> Is that not fantastic? A tiny tower conceived by a puny plan attended by pint-sized people. I mean, do you see the irony of these people building a city to make a name for themselves? Pint-sized people with oversized egos. And can you relate? Can you relate? And can't you see this all over the world? Celebrities of the world building their brands. I was like, what does that mean? In about 30 years, when they're dead and gone, their brand is gone with it. What does that mean? If you ever wonder if God is threatened by man's triumphs or man's successes or how he sees our attempts to make a name for ourselves outside of God, well, Psalm 2 tells you that he mocks and he laughs. And he's like, oh, dear man. You have got it so wrong. God sees it, doesn't he? A tiny tower, a puny plan, and a pint-sized people. Christian, I would ask you this. Is your God this big? Is your God this big? When When you read stuff and you think, oh, my word. This movement is getting bigger, and this is happening over here, and these people are getting more and more money for this. Over, Does your heart get anxious, or do you just think to yourself, a tiny tower, a puny plan, and a pint-sized people. God came down. And doesn't this put our own plans for grandeur in its place? Doesn't it? Just put their own plans to make our name great. Just compare that to the fact God came down. As we're going to learn, it's not the last time that he came down. Let's go to our last point, which is overarching thoughts. What I want to do here is just basically draw about three things from this story that I think will land in us and help us see some things. And again, there could be more things, but you've heard me say before, as your pastor the guy who loves you, prays for you, thinks about you. These are things I think would relate best to us right now where we are. These aren't necessarily for everybody, but these are things for us that I want you to pay attention to that I think will be 
encouraging to you. And the first thing I want you to see is that unity is not always good. Now just keep that in mind because you have a culture that is raging around you for uniformity. Everywhere around you, they're asking you and begging you, and they are pushing you to be uniform. No matter what the cause, have this particular month, do this particular day. Everybody rally around, and if you don't, you get castigated for it because you are then disunified with everybody else. Even, sadly, in the Christian community, there's a call for unity at all costs. But the Tower of Babel says something to us that you've got to pay attention to. Unity is not always good. Unity is seen in Genesis chapter 11 has the ability for great rebellion against God. And it can hurt people and harm people and lead people straight to the pit of hell. That's dangerous. Unity about sin is not good. Unity on falsities and error is not good. Unity being unified to make a name for ourselves is not good. These two quotes strike to the heart of it. According to the Lord's evaluation, their desire to enhance their unity and strength had potential for the greatest evil. It thus appears that the human family was striving for unity, security, and social immorality, making a name in defiance of God's desire for them to fill the earth. And then Derek Kidner wrote this. This is a fantastic statement. It makes it clear that unity and peace are not ultimate goods. Better division than collective apostasy. Friends, unity is not the goal. It's not the goal. Keeping this in mind, when your culture is trying to get you to conform to its morality, its ethical standards, and its belief, unity is not the ultimate good. The ultimate goal. And the same holds true in the Christian church. People want to be unified, but they never want to talk about what that means. And believe me when I tell you, when you ask for it, what do you mean by unity? What do you mean that we come together underneath this banner? What does this mean? And there's no definition of unity. A unity that is founded on the gospel, obedience to God, exalting his name, good. Rally around it. But unity for the sake of unity is not good. Unity is not always good. Now listen clearly, this is not a call for disunity. Do understand that? It's a call to recognize false unity that can be destructive and harmful. Unity is not always good. But the second thing I want you to notice is buildings and communities are not the issues. Heart motive is. I want you to see this clearly. It's clear from the text that the motivation of these people, based on their disobedience to God and their desire to build themselves up, was the issue. Now, this is critical because there are some who read Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, and they say to themselves and and to others, gathering in one place, congregating together like churches do, schools do, businesses do, you name it, is strictly forbidden by the text. We should not build cities. That's not what the text is exposing here. What the text is exposing is building a city of man for man rather than building a city for God. 
Big difference. Now, the original hearers would hear this story about the Bab, about Babel and the whole thing, and they would hear in it the city of Babylon, this, the, the empire of Babylon, because this is where it began. Now, what's intriguing is, if you know your Bibles very well, you'll understand that the city of Babylon and the empire of Babylon is known for a motif for the city of man. A.P. Ross wrote it like this, Babylon was the prototype of all nations, cities, and empires that raised themselves in pride. What's fascinating is when you contrast the building of the Tower of Babel and the city of man with the fact that God told his people to build him a temple to be worshipped in, in a city called Jerusalem where they were to gather together, that tells you God isn't opposed to building. He's not opposed to building a tower, a temple, or a city. The difference is the motivation. And the temple that God, that the people of God built in Jerusalem was to be a house of prayer and a place for God to be worshipped. What's fascinating, though, is when it stopped being that, God raised it to the ground. See, the true issue in Genesis chapter 11 is not people building a tower or a city. The issue is doing it for their own glory. Doing it to purposefully disobey God. To do it to be safe and secure and and not do exactly what God has asked us to do. Now listen, this is remarkably important for us right now in the church. CLF, keep this in mind as we are seeking to build our own building. As we seek to demonstrate and declare the gospel of Christ for the glory of God. Some have said, hey, now we got Jacoby, we don't need a new building. No, Jacoby reveals we need the new building because we're at the whim of Jacoby. They canceled church today because it's raining too hard. We don't know where we're going. And so keep it in mind when you see it, let the cry of our church continue to be, not to us, O Lord, but to your great name be all the glory. No, no matter if we're here, if we're in a tent, if we're in a building somewhere, if we're at the fairgrounds, if we're at Legion Field, wherever we are, that needs to be the cry of our heart. But listen, let that be true of you as you're building a business. Not to us, O Lord, but to your great name be all the glory. Let that be true of you when you're teaching in that classroom and you want to be known as an influential teacher. Why? Oh, not to me, O Lord, but to your great name be all the glory. Let that be to you as you're building your law practice. Not to me, O Lord, but to your great name be all the glory. See, friends, listen, buildings and communities are not the issue in Genesis 11. Heart motive is. Our hearts must be postured to build buildings, to build communities, to gather in certain locations for the glory of God and for the good of others. Now that leads us then to probably the most important point of this section is I want you to notice clearly that God permits sinful things to accomplish his ultimate end. Don't miss this. See, the reason... The problem with the building was there was to make a name for themselves and not take this out to the nation. See, there's there's something at work in this chapter that's just too important to ignore. It's obvious that these people were living in sin and God allowed this tower and city to be built. God let it happen. And this sin that they were involved in 
brought about all the languages and nations of the world, and people were forced to scatter because of the consequences of sin. That's why I wanted us to read down through verse 26 and just read a couple verses in verse 26, because in verses 10 through 26, Moses gives us Shem's family line. Once again, we've already seen Shem's family line in Genesis chapter 10. Only this time, as we saw last week, there's this man named Eber, who we talked about last week, and was a connection to the people of Israel. This time, the writer Moses takes us farther and connects Eber to Terah and his son named Abram. Now you go, now what's the big deal with that? Genesis 11 is an end of a section in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11 is about God dealing with all of humanity in a very general way. How God deals with all humans, common grace, common laws, common sin, common consequences, common genders, common things that we're supposed to do. But from this point forward, from Genesis 12 onward, we're going to see God working in and through a specific group and a specific nation of people, Israel or the people of God. And what God is doing in the book of Genesis from this point forward is fascinating. He shows us the nation's beginning in Genesis 11 to begin to narrow our focus down to one nation, one people. Because the question that you're wrestling with in the book of Genesis is, how is God going to bring about the Genesis 3 champion that we've seen? And how is God going to save sinful man and save sinful humanity? How is God going to bring man back to God and not make man subject to God's Wrath, how is God going to bring languages and nations together? And in Genesis chapter 12, the answer starts coming out. Because we get introduced to Abram and Abraham's people. We're going to learn more about this next week. But Genesis 12, 3 makes it very clear that out of Abram's family, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later in the story of Abraham, the Lord will tell him even more clearly that the uh, that he, out of his offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So what God told Moses' people is that the nations were scattered because of sin, but the plan of God is to bless all nations through their nation. See, God permitted sinful things to accomplish an ultimate end. Now, if you know your Bibles at all, you'll know that throughout the Old Testament, we'll see Israel growing more and more myopic, more and more self-centered, more and more gathering in one place with one language, being just like the people in Genesis chapter 11. And in the new, and they did not fulfill what God told them to do through Abram. And in the New Testament, something fascinating happens. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, God came down once again. Not not to come and say, what is man built? But to come and render judgment and fulfill everything that was promised to Abraham and to his family. Jesus is the perfect human. He's the perfect Israelite. He's the perfect fulfillment of Abram's family. And the Jewish leaders despised him. And they eventually put him to death on a cruel Roman cross. Why? Because God permitted sinful things to accomplish his ultimate end. The Apostle Paul, remembering God's word to Abraham, wrote in Galatians chapter 3, 
pay very clear attention to what Paul wrote, that Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham who would bless the nations. In other words, in Jesus, God blessed all nations, not just Israel. Jesus becomes the unifier of languages, listen clearly, without changing our language. He becomes the unifier of our buildings and the unifier of our communities. Jesus makes it possible for people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to be members of God's family and live for his name, not their name. Jesus makes it possible that we might be transformed to live a life for his glory, not our own glory. And the people of faith who put their trust in Jesus are members of Abraham's family and ultimately members of God's family. Now you're going to notice something fascinating. Different from the desire of those in Genesis 11, Kenneth Matthews wrote these words, God envisions a single people of God without suppressing the national entities that make up that spiritual citizenry. Genesis 11, they wanted to come together and be uniform. God says, no, I'm going to send you out to diverse languages and nations to fill all the earth to show something. My power is so great that it can unify all nations, all languages, all communities, all people underneath the banner of Christ. The consequences of sin brought about something that God has now redeemed. You see it in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 after Jesus has been raised from the dead when people heard the mighty works of God in their own language. Notice, it wasn't changing the language. They heard it in their own language. And we read it about in the book of Acts as the gospel goes out to all parts of the known world in various cultures and languages. And the end result, oh, what a glorious end result, is that people from every tribe, nation, and language are gathered around the throne of God, worshiping God. You see in Revelation, you see, don't you, Genesis 11 being redeemed. Showing us God's power in Christ is greater than all of our sin. Sin brought about the languages of the world, but Christ, Abram's offspring, brings all languages to worship at his glorious throne. Do, do, do you see the vision? Do you, please, do you see the vision? Yes or no, right? Yeah, yes, right? Do you see this vision? It's this glorious vision. It's this vision. People from all over the world, in every language, tribe, and culture, that they might hear and know that Christ is king. It's that vision, listen, that we risk our comfort. We risk our security. We even at times will risk our safety. Why? Because it's, it's why we don't make a name for ourselves because we want to lift high the name of Jesus. And friends, it's this gospel. It's this gospel power that we're seeing all over the world. All over the world. And it's because God permitted sinful things to accomplish his ultimate end. Somebody last week called me and said, hey, aren't you discouraged while you're seeing around the world? I said, oh no, brother. I'm just the opposite. I am seeing the gospel and the power of God go out in ways around this world I never dreamed of seeing in my lifetime. And friends, to prove that to you this morning, I've asked four members of our church to come up, and they're going to show you, and you're going to hear worship unto God in a language that's not English. To just show you 
the gospel has gone out in power. And it continues to go out in power. And it will continue to go out in power until God accomplishes his ultimate end. So you guys come on up. So Luis is going to read in Spanish. Rebecca's going to read in French. Nadia is going to read in Russian. <clears throat> and Abby is going to read in Tagalog. Now to set the stage for what they're going to read, I want to read to you from the portion of scripture just before the passages that they're going to read this morning. Revelation chapter 5 says this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and nation, and, the, and every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Y miré, y oí la voz de muchos ángeles alrededor del trono y de los seres vivientes y de los ancianos, y el número de ellos era miriadas de miriadas y millares de millares, que decían a gran voz, el cordero que fue inmolado, digno es de recibir el poder, las riquezas, la sabiduría, la fortaleza, el honor, la gloria y la alabanza, y a toda cosa creada, que está en el cielo, sobre la tierra, debajo de la tierra y en el mar, y a todas las cosas que en ellos hay, oí decir, al que está sentado en el trono y al cordero, sea la alabanza, la honra, la gloria y el dominio por los siglos de los siglos. Apocalipsis 5, 11 a 13. Yo regardé, yo entendí la voix de beaucoup d'anges autour du trône et des êtres vivants et des vieillards. Et leur nombre était des myriades et des myriades et des milliers de milliers. Ils disaient d'une voix forte, l'agneau qui a été immolé est digne de recevoir la puissance, la richesse, la sagesse, la force, l'honneur, la gloire et la louange. Et toutes les créatures qui sont dans, la, dans le ciel, sur la terre, sous la terre et sur la mer, et tout ce qui s'y trouve, je les entendis qui disaient à celui qui est assis sur le trône et à l'agneau sur la louange, l'honneur, la gloire et la force au siècle des siècles. И видел я и слышал голос многих ангелов вокруг престола и животных и старцев, и число их было тьмы тем и тысячи тысяч которые говорили громким голосом «Достоин Агнец, закланный принять силу и богатство, и премудрость, и крепость, и честь, и славу, и благословение. И всякое создание, находящееся на земле, на небе, и под землею, и на море, и все, что в них, слышал я, говорила, сидящему на престоле и акцию, благословение и честь, и слава, и держава во веки веков». Apokalipsis Kapitulo 5, Talutod 11-13 At nakita ko at narinig ko ang tinig ng maraming mga anghel sa palibot ng luklukan at ng mga nilalang na buhay at ng matatanda. 
At ang bilang nila ay sampung libong, tigsa sampung libo at libo libo. Na nagsasabi ng malakas na tinig, karapat dapat ang kordero na pinatay upang tumanggap ng kapangyarihan at kayamanan at karunungan at kalakasan at kapurihan at kaluwalhatian at pagpapala. At ang bawat bagay na nilalang na nasa langit at nasa ibabaw ng lupa at nasa ilalim ng lupa at nasa ibabaw ng dagat at lahat ng mga bagay na nasa mga ito ay narinig kong nagsasabi sa kanya na nakaupo sa luklukan at sa kordero ay ang pagpapala at kapurihan at kaluwalhatian at pagahari magpakailan kailanman. Here's what they read. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him, who sits on the throne unto the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.